If you're new to New Hope, welcome. Glad you're here. I don't always sound like this. <clears throat> the worship team is taking bets on whether or not I'll make it through this. <laughs> no, they're not really. <laughs> they were joking with me about it, though. Um, I have uh, a desire to take you to Acts chapter 2 this morning. And so if you have your Bible with you, why don't you go ahead and turn there. And before we get to that, I, I want to pull something to your attention. So while you're turning in your Bible, you might also look in your bulletin this morning. Um, there's this little card, and it says, I need a hero on it. We're launching a series next week um, that some of you have been waiting a little while for. When we were in the book of Hebrews, we kind of glossed over the chapter of 11, and we said that we would be coming back to uh, chapter 11 this fall. Well, this next weekend begins that series, I Need a Hero. So that little card kind of gives you some insight of some of the characters that we're going to be looking at. But we've done something that we haven't normally done in the past. This particular time, we produced a little video, which is just two minutes long. It's a, it's a promo, and it's an actual invite from me for you to use for your friends. So what we're going to do later uh, today and tomorrow, we're going to send out a link to all the email addresses that we have. Gary tells me there's somewhere around 1,000 people now whose email addresses are a part of our, our mailing list here. And we're going to send that link out for you to forward on to a friend to invite them to the series that begins next weekend. So I wanted you to see what it is, actually. And you're going to watch this little video. Well, let's watch it together, and then we'll jump into Acts chapter 2. So you can decide if you want to send that on to some friends and, and invite them to join you here next week. Before we get into Acts chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, we come before you with our hearts prepared to hear from you, regardless of my voice or the weakness of it, our desire as a people is to let your word speak. So despite human frailties, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would inhabit this auditorium, that you would have free reign here, and that you would speak in ways that I cannot, and that you would speak directly to our hearts. So we pray, Father, that your word would be alive and you said that it's active and it's sharp, so we ask that you would use it in that way. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see if you agree with me on this statement. Most people want an encounter with God. Most people would agree with that, right? They desire in some way to experience a connection with God. I think that's the reason most people come to church. Some come just out of habit. And habit's not a bad thing. But implicit within our involvement in church is a desire to connect with God in some way. And so in the midst of that connecting, we're really desiring one of two things. If we have a relationship with God already, we want to strengthen that relationship. Or if we're new to church life, we're new to this thing about exploring God, there's also that desire to begin and get a fresh new start. So one of those two things are going on. But what kind of a drag would it be if you were pursuing a relationship with someone who didn't want it. You ever been there, guys? I can speak to this as a guy. Ever found yourself pursuing a girl in your life in the past and she repelled you? Not that you're repulsive, I'm not saying that. But there's always that time in life, I remember in high school and in college, you identify somebody that you want a relationship with and they're just not interested. Eventually, you feel like you're spinning your wheels, right? You just, you're not going to get any place with that person. Well, why do we pursue relationships? 
The, the obvious answer is because that's how we're built. We are wired for relationship. God wired us that way. I want to take you to Genesis chapter 1 before we get to Acts chapter 2. And you can flip over there yourself or you'll see it on the screen so you can follow along. But look at this setting in which God establishes the importance of relationship. It says this in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. So if mankind is created in the resemblance of God, and God is already in community, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, existing the triune God in community, if God is in community and we've been created in his image, then part of that image is that we would be in community together, meaning we're pre-wired from the factory for relationship. No assembly required whatsoever. That's the way God built you. So as we explore Acts chapter 2, we want to keep that in mind. We see especially in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, one of the very first interactions that God had with mankind is that of reaching out into relationship. Genesis chapter 3 is talking about the fall of man, but look at this verse very closely. Verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. The word heard in the Hebrew language is the word shama. And the shama means literally to respond to something you're hearing. Now, you're hearing my finger clicking right now. It doesn't make you respond in any way. But shama means when you hear something, you immediately have a response mechanism to it. You want to do something with what you're hearing. Well, what did they do? Verse 9 says, Then the Lord God called to the man, Adam, Adam, where are you? See, they heard God in the garden. They knew that God was in relationship with them. And their immediate response to that was to run to the trees because they had fallen. They had committed sin. And they knew that the God who wants relationship wanted to be with them. And it's not that God didn't know that they had sinned, but God's calling Adam out in that moment. So the Shema caused them to run. God responds by calling out to the man saying, Hey, where are you guys? See, the very fact in Genesis that he tells us he wants us to multiply and increase upon the face of the earth is the very evidence implicit within that, that he wants us to expand these opportunities for relationship, meaning we need each other because that's God's plan. So to us, that should mean that the phenomenal success of things like Twitter and Facebook shouldn't catch us by surprise That's just mankind doing what mankind is always going to do. We're always going to find a way to connect with each other. We're always going to make that happen because God built us for community. Now transfer that over to the church. It is the building block of Jesus' church. Matter of fact, I'll go one step further. Without that component, without community, without fellowship, we cannot carry out the function of what Jesus intends for this church. It's not possible. Let me take you to another garden setting. God's in another garden. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Thursday. Jesus is about to be arrested. Literally, after these words, the soldiers arrive. Look with me at what Jesus says. John 17, 20. So God the Son talking to God the Father. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, meaning you. See, Jesus is praying for you in that moment. All those who will believe after the disciples. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, without that component of community life together, the world is not going to be impacted by us. That's what Acts chapter 2 fleshes out. How they functioned 2,000 years ago in this very first church setting is a direct impact on how you and I function today in 2014. So flip over if you happen to have your Bible open to Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Here's the background. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, is just leveled charges against thousands of people. He's in the temple setting. Many thousands have gathered. They're hearing what he has to say about Jesus. And then he comes out full forward and tells them exactly what they did. And with shattered emotions, they just cry out because they don't know what to do. Look with me at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So verse 36 tells us what they heard. Peter said, You crucified the King of glory. You literally have executed your own Messiah. And so they're pierced to the heart. And the concept in the Greek language of being pierced to the heart literally means to be stabbed, unexpected. They didn't even see it coming. Peter leveled the charge against them. Look at what you've done. You've killed your own Messiah. They executed Jesus, and they're guilty, and they know it. And so they're completely overwhelmed by grief in this moment. What do we do? How do we fix this? So they don't know what to do. Their response is they're people who know there's a God, and they want to connect with God, and they understand that they've killed God's own son. It is really difficult for us to grasp the magnitude of the change that was necessary for these first century Jews to hear that charge. These are individuals who are part of a unique community. They have a very rich cultural heritage, a very rich history. They are incredibly nationalistic. You think you're patriotic to the United States of America? These people take it to a whole new level. God's chosen people who had been given the promised land, they will go to great lengths to protect their national identity. And their nation's leaders have rejected Jesus. They literally executed him as a criminal. So Peter is telling them to reject their own country and their own nation's leaders and turn their back on them and embrace Jesus and they're torn. What do we do? Now, don't let that pass too quickly. Let your mind just focus on that for a moment because many here have come to this exact same situation. Now, you may not have actually called out, crucify Jesus. They didn't actually call out, crucify Jesus. There's thousands of them there. Some of them didn't actually say that. They certainly didn't all hold the hammer in their hands and nail Jesus to the cross. The Romans did that. But they're guilty nonetheless, just like Judas 
and they're consumed with turmoil because they know. And in this moment, they arrive at a reality. They know that they know that they know that Jesus is the Christ, the Mashiach, the Messiah. And now what do we do? So that's why they're so torn. And in this moment, what you're looking at is life transformation. The Holy Spirit has just brought conviction on them. And it's conviction of sin. And in this moment, it's part of their genuine conversion. Without that conviction, you can't have genuine conversion. In that moment, you know that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And what you're seeing there is pure humility. Absolutely genuine. I know. What do I do about it? They don't know what to do about it. But Jesus does. And that's why Peter responds the way that he does. Now, playing out is a series of really brief vignettes. Each one, each sentence is just like a photograph. It's a snapshot. And it describes what happens on day one and what happened over the course of three to five years. Look at the response in verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Now, if you look back in verse 38, Peter said specifically to them, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because baptism meant something different to them than what it does to you today. And so he specifically said, be baptized in the name of Jesus. It leaves no room for any secret disciples. See, the Jews had a view of baptism is that it was a procedure focused on Gentiles. If a Gentile had been proselytized, someone had talked to them about acknowledging the God of the universe and they decided they wanted to become a Jew, they were baptized to wash away their past. It was a symbology of saying, that's my past, this is my new beginning, this is me, I belong. And so for the Jews to look upon baptism was to look upon themselves as saying, I'm kind of like a Gentile? I don't think so. Well, this was offensive to them. So Peter's asking them a really, really strong thing to do. So this is a, a traumatic adaptation of their thinking. To say, not only be baptized, but be baptized in the name of Jesus. Our culture has a really difficult time getting our mind around what's going on in their mind in this moment. We have difficulty understanding this, but here's what happens. 3,000 people take the revolutionary step of saying, I'm in. I belong. I get it. I understand who he is I don't care if my nation identifies me that way. So what we understand according to Acts chapter 1 is what was a small church of 120 people now explodes into the first megachurch in history. 3,000 plus people. 120 the day before, more than 3,000 the next day. Thousands of new believers who don't know what they don't know. And all of them need to be taught. And every one of them need to be connected Can you say chaos? Absolute chaos in this moment. Verse 42 says this, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So they got this single course of action. It says devoted, right? That's one of the words that's emphasized in there. Look at the meaning of the word devoted. It means they're locked on like a laser. They got this steadfast resolve. Absolutely not going to be altered to the left or to the right. They've got this commitment to a course of action. And their devotion is 24-7. The same word is used in Acts chapter 1 when it says the 120 were up in the upper room praying. 
for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They were devoted, focused. Nothing could alter their thinking. So what are they committing to? What are they that devoted to? Four really extraordinary trademarks of a Christ-centered Bible church. These four things that you see on the screen, teaching, worship, prayer, and fellowship. And without each of these elements, you cannot have a church. You remove any one of them, you might have a country club, but you don't have a church. A church stands on those four legs of this particular stool, and it's very, very critical. So verse 42 says teaching is one of the things they were devoted to. God's design is that the church would be a setting in which his word would be explained. When we meet together as a group of believers, that we would study his word. 2 Timothy 2.2 makes it really, really clear. It says this, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So a commitment to teaching is just really foundational to the health of a true Bible church, one that's really focused. We understand and we know this. I hope you agree with me on this. This is the word of God, 100% the real deal. If it's any less than that, we have a serious problem, don't we? So it's not a collection of myths or fables or interesting history. It's God's word. And he says his word is alive and active. And God says, I want my word to be taught. But you know that, that, that that's not news, right? Well, here's the difficulty. M- many people in our country today are sitting in churches where they've stopped teaching the Word of God. And it's caused chaos. It's caused great difficulty. And God's church is beginning to decline as opposed to increase in size because His Word has stopped. What have they stopped doing? They've stopped sharing the exposition. What I do here is called expositional teaching. They've stopped doing that, and they've stopped giving the application of Scripture. So look at the warning that God attaches to individuals who stop pursuing His Word. He says this in Hosea 4, 6, My people, they are obliterated for a lack of knowledge. He's not talking about individuals who don't understand how to plant crops properly or individuals who don't know how to bake a loaf of bread, not that kind of knowledge. He's talking in Hosea about the knowledge of the Word of God. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge about me. Let's say the word destroyed together because it is so powerful. It needs to resonate with us. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. So if the churches could get that down, that this is part of God's plan, that the original church devoted itself to teaching, they would understand that's in keeping with God's plan. So believers cannot function with principles they've never learned or truth that they've never been taught. And here's a truth. The enemy is alive and active, and he feeds on the untaught. And the churches today are full of untaught believers. It is very, very unfortunate. That's the teaching component. Let's go to verse 42 again for the word fellowship, which is an interesting word because it's both a verb and a noun. So as a verb, it's an action word, but as a noun, it's a title. And I think you're going to find, as you go through this with me, that this word fellowship, what we're all about here at New Hope, it's a hub. It's a hub around which each of these elements really spin because fellowship is implicit in each of these things. When I use the word fellowship, what pops in your mind? Say it good and loud. Time together, yeah. What else? What? Potlucks. <laughs> yeah. Sharing, right. 
Building relationships, yeah. Some people think, what's that? Encouraging, yeah. Uh, some people immediately think of the Fellowship of the Rings in the Lord of the Rings series. Uh, some think of the books and the movies. Some, some think of an academic setting. In, in the world of academia, a fellowship means something entirely different. But look at this word for fellowship on the screen. Biblically, this, this word koinonia means a partnership, or as someone just said a moment ago, sharing, doing something together. We find it specifically expressed throughout the New Testament in the one another statements. Let me show you what I mean by that. Here's an example. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. See, that's koinonia. Here's another example. 1 Peter 4.9. Be hospitable to one another. And he goes on to say, serving one another. That's koinonia. Those are part of the examples. They're all over the New Testament. That's true koinonia. So this fellowship is the way in which we encourage each other, we inspire each other, we motivate each other. So it's not just an obligation or a responsibility. It's how we do life together. So logically, we have to ask ourselves this question. How can we possibly do that if we're not in community together at some level? Exactly. How can you do that if you're not in community together at some level? See, it really requires in the church that we do life together, that we know each other so well that we can speak into each other's lives so that it's more than just a hallway conversation. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing fine. When you're really not doing fine, you, you want to share what's really going on underneath. We have to know each other so well that we know what's going on in their lives so we can speak into that. So here's what we know about Scripture. Those who identify themselves with Jesus... Those who commit themselves to be partners with him, who are in community with other believers, are also in community with God the Father. Let me take you to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, and look at what John wrote here. Just watch the flow of this passage. He says this in verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, and what we have seen with our eyes... What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You know, he's speaking about Jesus here. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have koinonia with us. But he doesn't stop there, does he? That you may have koinonia with us and indeed our koinonia is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Incredibly consistent with Genesis chapter 1. Adam, where are you? God reaching out, saying, I want relationship. This is our God, New Testament, Old Testament. Very, very consistent. So this one who established relationship desires relationship. So God saying literally, get in here. Get in on this. Just jump in. Do you know that you will only find that in the life of the church? It doesn't exist anyplace else on planet Earth. It's in the walls of the church. And I don't mean literally the walls of a building. You will only find that in the life of the church. So for a Christian to fail to participate in the life of a church, absolutely inexcusable. 
It's a direct command of God. You know that. We spent time in Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, Consider, Hebrews 10.24, Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So your fellowship is permanent. Did you know that? The fellowship that you have now with one another, it carries over into eternity. It means you're stuck with me for eternity. Whether you like me or not, we're going to be together for all eternity. Why? Because we are the fellowship of the king. This is the way he designed it. So that's the fellowship component. Here's very quickly the last two, the breaking of bread. What's he talking about there? What is that? Well, he's not talking about busting open a Pizza Hut box and breaking the crust apart, okay? That's not the breaking of bread that's implied here. It's bookmarked, you notice, between fellowship and prayer which raises it to a whole new level. The breaking of bread that he's talking about here is not an ordinary meal. It's this one that is strongly connected with the worship of God. It's the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's what we do here on a monthly basis. Because you can't do communion without your brothers and sisters. You're celebrating together in unity what Jesus did for you. So that's part of that fellowship component. And do you know that it's not optional? Jesus said, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul quoted him by saying, when you do this, meaning you don't have an option, do this in remembrance of me. He says it several times throughout that passage. So it's not optional. So here's what we find here. A group of people with a very unique identity, with a very unique purpose. No place else on earth can you find it. These believers meet together on common ground, just like you and I do every week, at the foot of the cross, everyone being absolutely equal because every one of us are sinners saved by grace in Jesus Christ, right? Truth of Scripture. We're all equal. We're all on the same playing field. That's why Paul wrote, there's neither male or female, Jew or Gentile. We're all even on the foot of the cross. So the last thing he says that they committed themselves to, like a laser, is to prayer. And these individuals understood the importance of not only pursuing each other in fellowship, but also about pursuing God. I want you to see an interesting quote that I got from John MacArthur, and I've never seen it before until this week. He said it this way, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Kind of creeped me out the first time I read it. I had to live with it for for a few minutes. I'm just going to let it settle in your mind. But it's a very true thought. Your action of prayer moves the might of God's arm. It moves the activity of God. Very interesting way of saying I kind of like it now that I've lived with it for a little while. Maybe you'll have to live with it for a little bit. So here's what these individuals understand. They relentlessly pursued God through prayer, absolutely devoted to it. It's one of the big four. So this is very consistent with Romans chapter 12. Look with me at what Paul wrote. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Four elements that are unique to the life of the church. So if we are to become what God wants us to become, what he wants for new hope, we have to focus on studying God's word, on worshiping God. Breaking of the bread is an example of that. On prayer incorporated in fellowship, in unity together. So when they did that, Maybe you've never looked at Acts chapter 2 this way. When they did those things, look at what it produced. 
Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So this fellowship is so authentic, so spiritually powerful, that everyone, meaning inside the church and outside the church, notice that there's something remarkable about these people. And I want you to notice very specifically, they aren't awed by physical human capability They're awed by the things that God is doing. The word awe is the word phobos. You see it in your notes on the right-hand side this morning. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. But but the word phobos in the biblical terms literally mean people who are affected by the presence of God. They recognize that God is present, that God is in the room. And so these people felt this sense of awe. We're told, actually, they kept feeling it, meaning it was lingering It stayed, and here's the remarkable thing to me about that verse. The people who were non-believers, those outside the church, saw what was going on among the people of the church. Everyone is very explicit in that verse, meaning it's both believers and non-believers. What are the non-believers doing? They're watching you. They're watching your life. So verse 44 says, and all those who had believed were together. And had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions. And were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Here's a principle that cuts across all categories of wealth or poverty. We touched on this just a little bit last week. We're not talking about communism here. We're talking about communism. Sharing with other people who are in deep need. Loving on each other. Friends doing battle with each other in a healthy way helping each other in the times of trauma. As a body, we shared together what happened with Trish Brown two weeks ago, and we talked about her fall down the steps and the physical battle that she's going through to recover now. Today, while we're here, she's over in Mary Freebed Hospital going through therapy. That's what it looks like for a family of believers to be aware of each other, of our needs and what's going on in their life so that why? We can pray. We can lift them up. We can encourage them. Going to the hospital and seeing people from your church showing up and sitting in a waiting room with an individual is an incredibly encouraging thing. The same is true for those of us who are on the hunt for jobs or those of us who have great needs in our life, those of us who are struggling with raising children. We need to be encouraged in that way. So we're told these individuals had all things in common, not just physical goods, but you're sharing with each other. And this doesn't indicate a commune. This is not a communist lifestyle. Some think about the setting. And this fellowship came from far reaches of Europe and from Asia Minor to be at the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. They heard Peter stand on a platform and speak to thousands of people. And some of them decided, I'm in. I'm putting my stake in the ground. I belong to Jesus. Some of those individuals didn't return home immediately, and their resources ran out. They didn't have enough money to keep them over. So the people of the community, this bond of Christ, drew those individuals in and said, we'll help you. They wanted to be part of the work of God. Eventually, they went back to their own homes. Then there were other individuals who lost their jobs because they put their stake in the ground. Their employer either fired them because in the Jewish community, you didn't identify with Jesus. So those individuals who lost their job immediately needed to feed their family. The church drew them in. And then there were individuals who were just poor. 
So this group has banded together to help meet each other's needs. That's what got the church started. So it's not communism. It's communism. And they're selling things as anyone might have need. What you're really looking at is enormous generosity. Purely voluntary, but enormous generosity. And do you notice that their sharing is not just material? Verse 46 tells us something very specific. It includes their spiritual life. Let's go to this last passage. It says, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So continuing with one mind, just let that one sentence register in your mind. Look at that. Continuing with one mind. What you're looking at is a picture of unity, church. People who are very, very focused. This continuing with one mind says something very specific about them. They are unified to the degree that they have one accord. The unity of the fellowship. It means there's a sense of purpose. They know why they're doing what they're doing. So we're told in verse 42 that they didn't wait for Sunday. Do you see that it says day by day? Day by day, they met together in the temple, worshiping. They didn't wait for Sunday, and then they're also spending time together, breaking meals together. Not just breaking bread in communion, but taking meals together from house to house, meaning they're showing up at Culver's together, okay? They're going to Old Chicago to split a pizza. They're going to their neighbor's house to do life together. Why? Because the community watches things like that. I had someone come to me after the Saturday night service that didn't want her name shared, but she said to me, you know, this last week, I was at a McDonald's, and she said, I saw a man who was obviously very down and out, and he was standing at the counter, and he ordered a, a, a cheeseburger, a $1 cheeseburger, and he counted out coins on the counter. And she said, I could tell he had not eaten in a long time, and so I went up to him and said, can I do something for you? Is there something more you would like to eat? And the man was very embarrassed, and he said, no, no, I'm okay. And she said, listen, I can tell you're hungry. And he said, I want a quarter pounder. <laughs> she said, with cheese? He said, that'd be great, but that's enough. She said, how about fries and a drink? He said, no, that, that's too much. She said, let me get fries and a drink and a quarter pounder for you. So she bought the meal for him. She told me that later that day she went to work. She works at Home Depot. An individual came up to her place where she works at her workstation and said, I know you. I saw you today at McDonald's. I watched you with that guy. You must go to church someplace. People don't do that on their own. She said, yeah, I, I do, actually. And she got to talk to him about New Hope a little bit. See, people are watching. They're watching to see how we do life. So we understand these individuals who are day by day going to the temple, worshiping, taking their meals together, something remarkable about them in verse 46. It says they did this with gladness and with sincerity. I really focus on the word sincerity in this moment. And this word sincerity is so significant because of the reason that Luke listed it here. Dr. Luke used a word when he used sincerity that was used of road building, aphelatos. It was spoken of on the Roman road systems when someone would go out and remove the rocks and the pebbles so that when the chariots went down the road, they didn't hit rocks and bounce. Rather, they made a smooth road for them. There is an absence of rocks. So when he says the word sincerity, it literally means free from rocks. Meaning what? There were no hard places in their hearts. The generosity is there. 
They've studied God's word together. They worship together. They pray together. They're doing life together. And it's led them to a place where they've just got this aphelitoes, a smoothness in their heart. And so that naturally shouldn't be a surprise to us that we read here that these people who are in true fellowship are part of a joyful church. And that's when you and I praise God best. When our hearts are so full of joy, what does it lead us to? It leads us to praise. Look with me at this last verse, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Praising God literally means this. If you've always wondered what is that, you're recounting his marvelous works. We do that. We do that among mankind. Some of you did it yesterday. You're watching football games. You're going, wow, look at that quarterback. You're willing to tell other people at work the next day about what you saw on your television screen. What are you doing? You're praising that person. It happens in the work environment, employer or employee. We elevate someone because of their performance. That's praise. Well, what are they doing here? They're praising God because of his magnificent works, his attributes among them, his activity. So that's the goal of this fellowship is that they would praise God. So as a result of all those things, verse 47 ends by this remarkable statement. The Lord was adding to their number. God's doing it. God's preparing the hearts. God knows that there's people outside watching those on the inside. See, God's design is such that the inevitable outflow of a really healthy church is that it reproduces. So according to this, a a church that's doing its part on spiritual responsibilities, learning, loving, worship, prayer, just like you find on our ink pen, those four components, learning, loving, worship, prayer means we're going to find ourselves reproducing. And so this adding numbers is a natural component of who we are. It's not one of the things we do. It's organic. It just flows from the life of a very, very healthy church. So to sum it up this way, God is adding to their numbers. God is blessing them. The people in the community are watching, which means it's really attractional. Why? Because the people in the community can identify life change They know Joe, and the Joe of six months ago isn't the Joe of today. The Kim of six months ago isn't the Kim of today. What's going on? Why is that person so different? Why is their life changing? They seem to be on a better course. Look at those people that she's joined with. What's going on there? These people outside are witnessing what it looks like to live connected, and they're saying, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of what's going on there. So let me take you back 360 degrees to this garden setting. Jesus, God the Son, talking to God the Father. John 17, 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe. Did God answer that prayer? Maybe you didn't hear me. Did God answer that prayer? I know it's strange to think of it that way, but God the Son in the garden, Father, please, please, 
what's on his heart just before he's about to be arrested? You are. His fellowship, that we would be one. If I'm about to be executed, I'm sorry, I'm probably thinking about a whole lot of different things. I may not be thinking about you. But God the Son is thinking about us. He says, I want you to be one. Why? That the world might believe. That the world might believe that you sent me. See, God's goal, God's purpose is that you and I would do life together. That we would be so unified that the world would believe. So Jesus has just clarified that. When we do life together, it is so other. It is so other than what other people are used to. The world takes notice. Why? Because they don't have anything like that. It just doesn't exist outside the church. When you're studying God's word together, worshiping God together, breaking bread, remembering what Jesus did, and praying together, it is different than anything you can find anyplace else on planet Earth. So other than the fact that it's really good to hear Acts chapter 2 again, how does that directly apply to us? We're getting ready to go out the door. What do we take with us this morning? How do we apply this directly to our lives? Well, know this. New hope as a fellowship began exactly in this fashion. A small group of people gathering together, having a common desire that God's Word would be taught, that there would be times of worship together, that we could speak of the great things of God, that we could celebrate, and that we could pray together. Now, when you're a small church, a very small fellowship, it's easy to watch out for each other's needs. You know what's going on in each other's lives. It's it's a small setting. You are effectively a small group, functionally. But a Christ-centered, growing church is going to arrive at the point in which it needs to establish a setting in which smaller groups can flourish amidst the growth of the larger church. Here's what you can take out the door with you this morning. This coming January, we hope to unfold a small groups program here at New Hope so that we can build into each other's lives. We're not lone rangers. We're doing life together. And so this small groups program has a purpose behind it. Fellowship for the sake of fellowship is fine, but fellowship without a purpose kind of leads to nothing. Fellowship with discipleship attached to it, then you're really clicking on all cylinders. God wants us to be discipling, to be growing and introducing new people into the kingdom. So it's not just fellowship for the sake of fellowship. Our community exists for the purpose of discipleship. That's why God has established us. So that's what I'm going to ask you to pray about, along with the things that God might have spoken to your own heart about this morning. Would you join me in praying about that right now? And then perhaps you would pray over the weeks ahead of you about that very thing. Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing among us, that you are adding to our numbers. You are increasing us in growth. Father, we willingly acknowledge it's your hand. It's your doing. We don't ever want to be guilty, Father, of just chasing after growth for growth's sake, but rather so that people are being discipled and that new believers are coming into the kingdom. So, Father, we would ask that you would bless us with wisdom for the sake of what you have established here. We ask that you would fill the hearts of leadership with understanding, that we not get ahead of you, and that for each man and woman and student who belongs to this church, 
that you would increase us in our understanding of how you want us to function within this environment. Father, I ask specifically for your blessing on those who have studied today, for those who have dedicated themselves to being here, not just out of habit, but out of a desire to be more relational with you, to understand what you have done and what you are doing. Father, send us out now with your blessing. It's in Jesus' mighty name we ask of this. Amen.